podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast on Wednesday, October the 7th. Delighted to be joined today by Lee Scott to have a quick breakdown of some of the tactical nuances that Lee spotted at the weekend. I'm pretty sure this is going to be painful for me, Lee, but how are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. It was a bit of a strange weekend all round, I think, and I know that as a Liverpool fan, I'm sure that you'd rather forget the match than, than talk about it in any depth. I, I, I absolutely would, but... It has to be talked about, so we might as well get it out of the way. Um, Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2. So if you want to give some tactical insight into this, and I'm going to go and have a quick cry (laughs) over what what I was subjected to by my beloved team. I think the first thing to say is it's not as bad as some people are making out from a Liverpool point of view. Aston Villa were were very very good. They were they were very dynamic and very capable of taking advantage of what Liverpool gave them within the game. But if you just isolate the goals just for a quick second, and how many times are you going to get Liverpool conceding goals of that manner so often in a game? The first goal, yes, it was a horrible mistake by Adrian. We we talk a lot from a tactical point of view about teams building out from the back and the inherent dangers within that, but. You're expecting professional players to complete a five, six yard pass defeat and not to put your central defender in huge problems straight away. So so that was an aberration straight away. And then there were the deflected goals as well. Barclays deflected goal, McGinn's deflected goal. Those are, are shots that sometimes they go your way, sometimes you go against they go against you. And in this case they all went against Liverpool. But I think to to move away from Liverpool just slightly, I think we need to talk a little bit about Aston Villa. And so often in matches like this, it can become, uh, the whole narrative after a game becomes so focused around the team that nobody expected to lose. So the the media narrative straight away was what happened to Liverpool. This is a shock. Liverpool have lost. Are they still title challengers? Do they need to sign players? Bear in mind this was before the transfer window closed. But you have to concentrate a little bit on exactly what Aston Villa did well. And what they did really well was use Jack Grealish in particular in a way that really forced Liverpool back and and prevented them from being able to use Trent Alexander-Arnold as their, their outlet in terms of ball progression because Grealish positioned themselves very deliberately on Alexander-Arnold in that space on the pitch. So whenever Trent tried to go forward to try and get involved in the build-up play, Jack Grealish stayed high. He would press to a point, and then at the halfway line, he would kind of stop and wait, and he would always be in that pocket space to receive the ball. When that happens to Liverpool, the, the natural effect that it has is Fabinho drops deeper and kind of comes out wide a little bit and tries to cover that space. So... Now Liverpool have got a problem because they're losing Fabinho's presence in the central areas because he's trying to cover in the wide areas. So eventually what happened was Trent Alexander-Arnold stopped getting forward in those positions. 
positions and grew up a little bit. And then you had Ollie Watkins, who was fantastic on the day. Yes, he scored a hat-trick. Should have scored four with that chance. He was one-on-one with the goalkeeper in the second half. But he was always connected quite closely to Grealish. He knew that the Grealish is the magnet for Aston Villa. So the ball comes through from, again, through Grealish. And Watkins was always in that zone as well. And I think that those those things in combination were just a really interesting tactical tweak from Dean Smith that showed that he really had a game plan for this match against Liverpool and his players really affected that game plan well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. See, I I was watching the game and thinking, Liverpool aren't actually playing that badly here. No, they weren't. Now, no. As you say, the first goal is a catastrophic error from, from Adrian. And I've seen some people try and defend him and say, oh, he was playing the ball to enable Gomez to turn to his left and run on to it. But yeah. that's nonsense. I mean, play the ball to the guy's feet and give him the choice. Let him know there's a man on if you're going to play that pass. And then three deflected goals. Like you say, uh, Watkins gets a deflected goal. Um, no, sorry, McGinn gets the deflected goal. Barkley gets a deflected goal. And Grealish gets a deflected goal. And you, That's not going to happen. No, most no. weeks it's it's the same fluke occurrence as Brighton hitting the woodwork like five times against United. It just is not going to happen on a regular basis. And Liverpool did have a lot of good moments. Now, it's important to note Villa were excellent. Yes, to a man, they were excellent right from the goalkeeper through the defence. I thought Ezri Konza and Mahdi Cash looked like they've been playing together for years on the right hand side of that defence. Kept Diogo Jota very, very quiet. Kept Bobby Firmino very quiet. Dealt really well with Andy Robertson, who actually had a very good game from left-back. And were able to to join the attack as well. Konza were playing the ball out. And Cash by getting forward and and providing an outlet. Then in midfield, I mean, John McGinn had maybe the best game I've ever seen him have. Douglas Luiz, I think, is one of the four or five best holding midfield players in the league. And I thought Ross Barkley was was absolutely magnificent. He probably should have had a hat-trick. If we're being fair, he missed two good chances. But he, from minute one, looked inspired. He looks like Dean Smith has got right into his head, convinced him that he, you are a top-class player. Don't let anyone tell you you're not. Forget what's happened to Chelsea. Forget the end of your time at Everton. You are one of the better midfield players in this league. And that's what you're here to show. And if you do show it, this will be your home long term. You're playing for your future here. And I thought he was brilliant. And then the front three. I mean, Grealish, with 10 out of 10 performance. Ollie, Ollie Watkins, I think he gets to take Joe Gomez home. I think that's how that works. <laughs> and, and overlooked has been the performance of Trezeguet, who made countless selfless runs to draw Liverpool defenders, knowing he probably wasn't going to get the ball but just to create space for Watkins through the middle and Barkley joining from midfield, I thought the I thought every single one of those Villa players was outstanding on the night. Yeah, no doubt whatsoever. I think that the role that Trezeguet played especially, I mean, you talked about his selfless runs going forward, but he was also the player who gave balance when they were in the defensive phase, when, when Grealish stayed higher. It meant that John McGinn had to edge out to that side of the field to provide cover which means Douglas Louise has a bigger space to cover. But it was Trezeguet who was coming back and providing that balance on the other side. And, and that was part of what allowed Aston Villa to have this game plan. 
I think that you're absolutely right in what you talk about with Ross Barkley. I think that there's no doubt. I mean, the problem that Aston Villa probably had to an extent last season was that they were relatively a one-trick show. They, the ball would automatically find Jack Grealish whenever he was on the pitch, and it's a mark of his quality that that, that didn't diminish their ability to create. He, he was the most fouled player in the Premier League last season. He also created, I think, amongst he's in the top three for the most big chances created in the Premier League last season, I'm sure, and he will go on to do that again. But suddenly you've got Ross Barkley, who's another dynamic ball carrier in that, that area of the pitch. So teams can't just double up on Jack Grealish anymore because Aston Villa will gradually realise that they can access Ross Barkley in the same area and he'll have space. But I think to talk about Ollie Watkins a little bit and beyond the goals, I think that what really impressed me from Ollie Watkins last season when he was at Brentford was the way that he was able to learn a new position because before last season, he'd never played as a striker at professional level. When he came through Exeter City, he was a left-sided attacker. When Brentford signed him, he played on the left or the right of the attack. But then when Brentford sold Neil Mopai, they, they automatically just switched Ollie Watkins into that role. And his work rate, his pressing, his, his ability to never give up on a ball is something that teams like Aston Villa really covet. And then he showed at the weekend that he has that ability to finish as well. I think that it's important as well to recognise that that Douglas Louise had a fantastic game because, as you say, what he does as a defensive midfielder, as a holding midfielder, it shows why Manchester City were so keen to keep him despite all the work permit issues that they had. And you have to wonder, with the defensive problems that Manchester City are showing this season, would Douglas Louise have been getting more game time? Although, knowing Pep Guardiola, he'd probably be converted to a centre-back by now and who knows how that would go. That's exactly it. I mean, he, he would definitely uh, improve that City team from a defensive aspect. I, I I always had kind of looked at him and thought, well, you know, Fernandinho's aging, but they have Douglas Luiz. Yeah. And eventually the work permit problems will sort themselves out. And then they have the ready-made successor. I think Villa did brilliantly to pounce last summer. I'm, su- I'm a little surprised City didn't bring him back this summer because they have that buyback clause. But thankfully for Villa, they've left him be. I think with Barkley as well, it gives you a more physical presence. Because one of the things I, I, I noticed with Villa last year was when they played Hurahan, Louise, and, and McGinn in midfield, they could become a little bit one-paced. Whereas with Barkley, he has that drive and that burst, and he can change gears quite quickly. And we saw that one brilliant driving run where he just bursts through the Liverpool midfield drives towards Van Dijk, knocks the ball past him, and Van Dijk has to take the yellow card. And that's the type of thing, that type of dynamism, they didn't have that last year. And when you add in what Matty Cash will offer coming from right back, this Villa team are going to cause a lot of problems. One thing I really I really enjoyed in this game, from trying to watch it as a neutral, but obviously, you know, tinted glasses, but <laughs> I thought... What Villa did was they they spotted a weakness in this Liverpool team last season. And weakness is, is maybe a strong word for it, but Liverpool obviously play an extraordinarily high line. And one of the reasons they get away with it is that they're great at calling that line and holding it steady and catching teams offside. And the other reason is that Alisson Becker plays so high yeah. as a goalkeeper that he can sweep up a lot of things that come in behind him. Villa 
last season were one of the toughest teams Liverpool played. And they called us out on that high line a couple of times. And I thought, going into that game on Sunday, with Adrian in goal, who's a lot more of a, of a six-yard box type goalkeeper, I thought Villa were able to really target that and just make their runs over and over again. And yes, they got caught offside a few times, but that didn't deter them from knowing this was an avenue that they could have success from. And I just felt that their their willingness to continue to try that was a massive mark in favour of Dean Smith, knowing that he'd saw something last year, exposed something a little bit last year, and then to have your game plan and focus in on that this year, I just thought it was great management. I think you're right. I think that that speaks to to exactly how positive it has been from Aston Villa that they stuck with Dean Smith, despite obviously coming close to relegation last year. A lot of clubs in that position would have moved on and found a different coach, but they, they obviously trust him there. And he had the, the ability, as you say, to recognise that that was an area of the pitch that they could take advantage of. But I think the problems with Adrian, yes, he's a penalty box goalkeeper. There's no doubt about it. He's not somebody who's overly comfortable with his feet. We saw that in that long stretch at the start of last season when Alisson was missing. And I think we saw it again, obviously, with the first goal at the weekend. I think that as soon as you play a high line with a goalkeeper who's perhaps more hesitant to come out and clear the ball, it puts that element of doubt in the heads of the defensive line. And and that's when the problem comes. Van Dijk controls that defensive line and does so extremely well, but he also has ironclad confidence that Alisson will back him up if the ball comes over. As soon as you see a different goalkeeper in that Liverpool side, there's suddenly doubt. Van Dijk doesn't fully trust that that's the case, and then you see players making mistakes because they're caught in two minds as to whether they, they maintain their hard line, as you say, because teams can play through it. We, we know teams can play through it. Leeds played through it time and time again in the opening day of the season. It will happen, but Liverpool allow that because they're confident in being able to deal with those defensive situations. First of all, they've got the high press, the high counter-press when they, they, in the defensive transition when players like Salah, Mane, Firmino, Keita, Vinaldum will all suddenly press the ball and that prevents clean progression. Then they have Alisson sweeping up behind and then you have an all-time central defender for the Premier League in Van Dijk who has the physical capacity to defend back towards his own goal. In this game, one link in that chain was missing and that link ended up I think being why Aston Villa were able to to break through so easily time and time again because there was that level of doubt. I think it's also worth touching upon the fact that this is the kind of tactical situation that Thiago was signed for when when Jurgen Klopp made it clear he wanted Thiago it was this kind of game that he had in mind when the opposition effectively take away the ball progression from Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back because Jack Grealish was playing so high, Trent had to play more defensively, then you would still have had Thiago in the midfield who would be able to be your ball progressor. I think Naby Keita played a little bit too high. I think that he was trying too hard to get up to support the forward players and wasn't always dropping into areas where he could receive the ball and then progress the ball. And I think that Vinaldum and, and Thiago, that connection was broken slightly because, as I said earlier on, Fabinho had to move over to the right-back area to try to provide cover, and it left Vinaldum isolated a little bit. So it would have been a very different game had Thiago been fit, I think, because Liverpool would have had more control to go along with their greater possession. 
I totally agree. I, I've seen a lot of unfair criticism of the midfield after this game. And I do just think they're a victim of, of circumstance. Like yeah, you say, no Thiago, the, the, the shuffling at the back because Alisson wasn't there. And, and you mentioned the trust that the defenders have and how good Liverpool are at holding that line. And we saw a couple of times where Joe Gomez and Trent were caught a yard or two behind the rest of their fellow defenders purely because that level of trust isn't there with Adrian and they're anticipating having to chase a runner. So they're trying to get themselves a little bit of a head start. And obviously Villa ruthlessly exposed that. Now, we spoke after the Southampton Tottenham game about Ralph has Ralph had Hassan ugh, excuse me Ralph Hassenhudel's refusal to drop his defensive line and we criticized him and I think we have to do the same here with Jurgen Klopp I think I think Klopp needs to recognize that Adrian isn't as comfortable and as capable of working with that high line and maybe from the start he should have dropped the defensive line a little bit but certainly as the game progressed it was a little bit concerning as a Liverpool fan to, to see Klopp not act, to not make a change with his defensive line because 15 minutes left in the second half Liverpool are still defending the halfway line Villa are still breaching it and you, you wonder is Klopp just a little bit too dogmatic in that approach? Potentially yes, I think it's difficult because absolutely as a coach you have to recognise that the change of goalkeeper is going to be a crucial factor. I think that what Klopp likes with the high defensive line is the control that it gives in possession because your team is compact and that the defensive line provides support to the midfield and the fullbacks and Vermeer drops deep and everything's very compact and the spacing's good and the ball progression's clean in that way. I can understand to an extent why he didn't change it in the first instance, even after the first two goals, because at that point with the game state, you're still trying to get back into the game so he believes that his team have the quality to to outplay Aston Villa in those areas I think that as the game wore on I think that you're absolutely right you should have been looking to drop that defensive line and, and not hugely 10 yards back gives you a little bit more breathing room than than it does at the moment it's not a difficult thing to do it's a simple instruction to to Virgil van Dijk who again is the player who controls it to make sure they're defending 10 yards deeper he'll understand how to do that he's, he's done that before he's played in deeper defensive lines at Southampton for example he knows how to defend in those areas what that does do though is it stretches the connections in the team and it makes it harder to play through the opposition and, and everything becomes a little bit more frantic so there has to be if you're doing that, then you take away the, the ability of Van Dyke, for example, to act as a ball progressor. So you're putting more onus in your midfield. And again, the connections in the midfield, it wasn't the personnel that were the problem. I believe it was the connections of Vinaldum ended up being isolated. And in the end, that was taken advantage of by Aston Villa, I think. Yeah, for sure. I actually, when they made the substitution at half time and brought Naby off and brought Minamino on, and shifted to a 4-2-3-1. My assumption was, okay, the defensive line will drop 10 to 15 yards. Yeah. The midfield will drop 5 to 10 yards. And now you have this extra line. So you can make up for the progression in that way. But it, it didn't happen. Liverpool just tried to condense everything into, into the Villa half. And as you said, Grealish stayed high. Watkins stayed high. 
Trezeguet dropped back, but with his pace was able to join them. Uh, Barkley, with his power and pace, was able to join the attack. And Ollie Watkins, I mean, it, it doesn't get spoken about enough how good his hold-up play is. Yeah. For a guy who, like you said, only a year ago was learning to play as a number nine, his hold-up play, his link-up play, his willingness to fight for every single ball was absolutely outstanding. And, and more so than the goals, I thought his off-ball work, the way he, he harassed Liverpool centre-backs in possession, the way he made runs to drag them out of central areas, knowing, again, that he might not get the ball, the way he made himself an option every single time somebody in that Villa team needed an outlet, Ollie Watkins was was a, an option for them. I thought his off-ball work was just tremendous. And I'll say this now, if he's not in the England squad by the end of the year, based on if he stays on this line of form, I'll be really surprised. I could see him going to the Euros if he keeps playing like this. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that last season um, I watched quite a lot of Brentford and there was one game in particular. It was the, the second leg of the playoff semi-final against Swansea City. I was actually doing commentary for the game and it was the the performance. I, I think I commented on it during the match when we were live, but the performance from Watkins in terms of his willingness to press and work out of possession and like you say hold the ball up bring others into play make selfless runs make runs in wide areas to create space centrally i said at the time that it was one of the best performances in that regard that i'd ever seen from a striker and i i maintain it. i was not surprised at all that he got the move to the premier league i think that he is a perfect fit after Aston Villa's recruitment of strikers last season in particular did not go well. Wesley and Samata are perfectly serviceable strikers, but perhaps not at the Premier League level. I think that they've corrected that mistake by, yes, they, they've paid quite a lot, but they've corrected that mistake by showing a willingness to recruit a player who fits the style of play that they want. I think that Watkins, along with Carver-Lewin, will definitely be in with a shout to break into the England squad. And with the way that Harry Kane's playing, almost in a, a more withdrawn striker role at times, there's perhaps a, a chance for England to play with two strikers at points as well. And if that's the case, then Watkins could definitely thrive in that role. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you mentioned Calvert-Lewin. There was a lot of Calvert-Lewin in that Ollie Watkins performance, that, that hold-up play, the doggedness, the clinical finishing... Um, both of them have started the season really, really well. And it's great for England to have so many options now when for years they didn't have any because, of course, Marcus Rashford can also play through the middle. Mason Greenwood can play through the middle. Um, You go back only two or three years and it was like, okay, well, if, if Harry Kane's not fit, there's England are in trouble here. Like, There's nobody else. There's absolutely nobody else. Now there's four and five options and yeah. maybe somebody else comes along this season and, and, and announces themselves in that regard as well. So we'll move off that. We're going to park that game and never speak of it again. Uh, but <laughs> congratulations to Villa. Uh, genuinely, hand on heart, you were magnificent in the night and you deserved to win. And even though you did get three deflected goals, I don't think 7-2 actually flattered them. I think they had enough chances to score seven even without the deflected goals. So... They were brilliant. But before that game, Liverpool fans had been giddy with joy, giddy with laughter, having watched Manchester United get trounced 6-1 at home by Spurs. So you watched that game. What did you make of it? 
did you think it was similar to the Liverpool game where Villa deserved the win and it was down to Villa? Or was this United's crumbling of, of their own making? I think there's no doubt at all that Spurs deserved to win in this match, but I think it was purely, or not purely, but mainly down to the fact that United were so incredibly poor from a tactical and structural point of view. It was one of the worst performances from a, a side who'd finished in the top four the previous season that I can remember seeing. I think that there was no cohesion about United. There was no evidence of a, a real game plan or an idea how they were going to break down and, and outplay Spurs. I think defensively, players were confused. They were easily dragged out of position. Just before recording, I don't know if you saw it, Dave, but I sent you a message on, on Twitter with a screenshot that I'd taken. Um, I was doing a little bit of work in this game, and it was the build-up to Spurs' fourth goal. I think it's Indabelli who plays the pass out from the central area to the right-hand side for Spurs, where Aurier is moving forward into acres of space. And I'd highlighted Luke Shaw, who is between his two centre-halves mm. at that point. I just didn't understand exactly what they were doing. I mean, he's side-by-side he's side in that image that I sent you with Eric Lamella. So you could argue that Eric Lamella's moved inside and, and Luke Shaw is supposed to be man-marking him to the, the extent that he's followed him all the way inside. And that form of man-marking works for a side like Leeds that we talked about that are so dogged and do it all over the pitch. But if you're man-marking to that extent, you have to man-mark everywhere else. And why was Ndombele free to play the pass wide? Why was Aurier an absolute acres of space. I think there's something fundamentally wrong at Manchester United and whereas I, I'm i the first person to be critical of their recruitment strategy and their squad building and squad planning and I think that Ed Woodward has a lot of questions to answer for Manchester United in terms of the way that they, the way that they build their team and the way that they act within the transfer market for a club of their size and their spending power. But I also think that it's time that Manchester United fans need to realise that they need to start questioning Solskjaer. Is Solskjaer the right person for this job when you still have Maurizio Pochettino sitting without a job, who's waiting for this project? He says he, he'll know the project when he sees it. He's already turned down jobs. I believe that he would come to Manchester United in a heartbeat. And I think that he's the kind of coach who would give a little bit of structure to, to United. I mean, you look at the United team and how many times at Old Trafford have you seen them win a penalty in the first minute and then go on to lose the game by by so many goals? It's It was ridiculous at times. And yes, Anthony Martial, perhaps, well, not perhaps, he shouldn't have been sent off. Uh, it was play-acting from Eric Lamella when he went down the penalty area. There was nothing in it. But at the same time, Matic and Pogba as a duo just... They give you nothing in the midfield. There was no structure. There was no cover. There was no balance. There was there wasn't one going forward or one coming back. And the defensive line, Harry Maguire fouled his own player for the Spurs goal. He pulled Luke Shaw down and allowed Ndombele to come in and, and score for the equaliser. I think it was. Maguire was poor. You had Eric Bailly who was playing passes out from the back that were putting Eric putting like in the manager Matic under so much pressure. It was unbelievable. And then you have Luke Shaw, who doesn't seem to know exactly where he should be positioning himself. And to top it all off, after the game, there are reports that Bruno Fernandes had a fallout with 
Harry Maguire in the changing room at half time because he was so angry with the way that Maguire was playing. And the reaction to that was to take Bruno Fernandes, the, the one creative passer that, that United seemed to have. They took him off at half time. There's just so much wrong with the game and wrong with the team and wrong with the squad. I think that they have serious questions to answer. So there is, there's a lot to unpack in that game. Now, I'm just looking at this image that you've sent me. And I saw another image that someone else had, had posted on Sunday evening from the same game. It's in the second half down the other end for the Aurier goal. And again, Shaw is central between his centre-backs. Yeah. This time stood right next to Lucas Moura, which is, you know, it does get me thinking, I wonder have they been told to man-mark the wide players? Because yeah. there was times during the game where Aaron Wan-Bissaka went really central trying to man-mark Youngman's son and, again, didn't get anywhere close to him. Now, one thing that's notable in that image that you sent me is they're running to the left-hand side. So they've come from even more central. It's not like a thing that they're running into the center, that he's trailing Eric Lamella into the center. He's running back out towards the left-back spot, having been even more central. And like you say, that works for Leeds because that's part of their tactical makeup. It also works for Leeds because Leeds centre-backs are comfortable to step out and play fullback. Harry Maguire is not comfortable to step out and play fullback. And no. I saw an interesting tweet from uh, Miguel Delaney at the weekend who said that he has heard from multiple players who've played with Maguire that they don't enjoy playing with him because his lack of pace makes leaves them exposed and can make them look bad. So if a player is that slow that his teammates ha have noticed that you know the, the opposition have noticed it, so you really don't want Harry Maguire having to drift out into the fullback spot. Um, I've watched all three United games this season quite closely. And I I'm not, you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is, is to not be talk sport and not be sensationalist and, and not be the Ollie out guy. Yeah. But there's no tactical plan. There's no, defensive structure there's no attacking structure there's no patterns of play you look at the the shape and it's it's an it's nominally a 4-2-3-1 that doesn't get the most out of Bruno Fernandes who's much better as an 8 than he is as a 10 he showed that with Sporting Lisbon it doesn't get the most out of Rashford and Greenwood who are forward players they're not wingers and when you play them as wingers they tend to get a little bit lost you don't have any real creativity in midfield. Bruno's a good passer, but he's not really a, an overly creative player uh, in, in the flow of the game. He's not the type who can beat him, beat a couple of guys on a dribble and slide a pass. His creative passes tend to be that bit longer, like his one against Brighton to Rashford. So you're, you're relying then on your fullbacks to kind of provide width and a bit of creativity. You're certainly not going to get that from Wan-Bissaka and Shaw. So, I just don't know that there's a real tactical plan with Oli. And, and as you said, Maurizio Pochettino sitting out there. So yeah. is Max Allegri. Both of them are sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. And United have made such a catastrophically poor start to the season on the pitch and in terms of transfers that it does just seem that this is going one way because truth be told, the only reason they have any points on the board is that Brighton 
wasted a bunch of chances and were very unlucky in terms of hitting the post because they outplayed United from minute one to minute 97 and hit the post five times. United could well be sitting here on no points after three games where they would have looked at it and thought, right, well, we're beating Palace at home. We'll go and we, we'll beat Brighton. And then Spurs at home, it's Spurs. We'll win that game. At worst case scenario, we'll take a draw. But seven points would be a good start. They're very, very lucky to have three points now. And while everybody's focus is on the transfers and how that's failed everybody, I really do think there needs to be some focus on Ollie. Again, Miguel Delaney tweeted it's the first time he's ever seen a team lose 6-1 at home and not one question was asked about the manager. And a big part of that is that Ollie has really good friends sitting in the commentary booth <laughs> and the punditry studio at, at, United, uh, at Sky and at BT. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I think that if this was any other game, any other coach, for example, the, the result was reversed. If United had came away with a 6-1 win and Spurs had played the way that United had played with the the lack of a tactical identity and the lack of any kind of game plan, I think that there would have been immediate questions about Mourinho. And, and that's just the reality. And you're right that there will be a point at which that's because Solskjaer has got people who he knows working in these places and, and that's just the way football works. But from an objective point of view, I think that fans at the club and people, I mean, the the people who own the club, who, who own United, they, they don't care about the results. It's, they're not owners who worry to the point of, of whether a team finishes top four, top six, top eight, top ten to that point. All that they're concerned about is the impact that that would have financially on them. That that's the the bottom line. That's why there's no real oversight into what the manager, the coach is doing. That falls on Ed Woodward, who has his own problems at the moment that he has to deal with. I think that going back just quickly to talk before we move on to Spurs, because we should talk about Spurs. Going back to talk about United just quickly, I think that there is a an element where they're trying to. It feels like they're trying to move away from what they were last season towards the end of the season when they were one of the, the better teams post lockdown and they played a very transition play and that suited the likes of Fernandez. Who you're right, he's, he's not great in the flow of the game. He's not great in patterns of play. He likes to get the ball when there's chaos around him. There are runners and then he plays those those longer through balls or longer switches of play and that's where his creativity is. But they're very transitional and that perhaps got the best a point out of Rashford because Rashford was able to to come inside more dynamically but it almost feels as though they're trying to play the same they're trying to affect the same tactical change that Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola both have at Liverpool and Manchester City and that they're moving to a style of play where they're looking to control the game more where they're looking to build up they're looking to dominate possession they're looking to move the opposition around and play passes that break defensive lines the problem is they don't have the quality of players to do that they they have good players that there's still no doubting that Paul Pogba is a top player but at what point do we stop saying that because he hasn't shown it for X amount of years? His attitude is poor, his movements are poor, His when he gets in possession he slows the game down too much for a player who would play in that kind of a dynamic controlling system and I think that's where the problems lie. I think that they're, they're caught between what they, what they do well and perhaps what they think they are and what they want to be and without significant investment in the transfer market they're not going to reach that bridge that gap and the way they're playing just now, they'll be extremely lucky to get anywhere close to the top four this season. And at that point, perhaps fans and all the pandits who... I mean, I I kid you not, I saw a lot of people who had United down as being the potential champions this season. 
because they believed in all the hype towards the end of last season when obviously they finished third and did well post-lockdown. So at the moment, United just feel broken. They do. Now, I, I don't pretend to be an in-the-know or any of that, but I spoke to a journalist with good, cl- good close links to United about four months ago. And what he told me is that from the owner's perspective, they don't care. The only thing that matters to them is getting Champions League every yep. second season. Not every year, every second season. Because that way, they keep their commercial deals as high as possible. Yeah. So what he said to me is, until United are pretty much mathematically eliminated from Champions League contention, don't expect Oli to go. That is basically what, what happened with Mourinho. Until they look dead and buried and, and with no hope of getting um, getting top four, Mourinho was, was safe. And then when that happened in, was it the, the December? He was gone. Or the October, late October, he was gone. Um, they said that basically, Oli will be safe until United can't make the Champions League for next season. But then they will look to bring in a manager with a mandate of, you need to get us top four next season. Not this season. This season, we'll write it off. We'll take Europa League. We'll still make our money in that. Not as yeah. much, but we'll make plenty. But next season, and I, I I know he's a figure of fun, but Mark Goldbridge made a very good point recently where he said, if you look at United's recruitment, they only really spend big the years they're in the Europa League. The years they get into the Champions League, they don't spend as big. And I went back and looked, and it is actually the truth. The years that United, unless they're bringing in, like when they brought in Jose, they spent you know big on Pogba. They were in the Champions League. But other than that, since Ferguson left, the years they're in the Europa League, they spend. The years they're not, it's kind of like, okay, well, we're in the Champions League, so we don't need to spend as much this season. And his, his argument was the owners never intended to, to function to, to finance a deal for Sancho. Yeah. And if you read the piece that um I think it's Laurie Whitehall, David Ornstein, and Rafa uh, Honigseg have on the Athletic about the Sancho deal, it becomes quite clear United never got close to signing him and they never had any intention of paying close to what Dortmund wanted. No. And I think that it's actually really interesting. I hadn't actually thought about it in those terms that they don't spend in their Champions League years and that marries almost perfectly with what you were saying about the ownership only caring about Champions League every two years I think it's a, an open secret that the the owners of United aren't football fans, they're not people who, who are interested in success and glory and the history of the club and that's a huge shame because I mean, I'm I'm based up in Aberdeen. Um, there are an awful lot of people up here who are still ardent Manchester United supporters, including in my own family. And that's down to the, the Alex Ferguson link between Aberdeen and Manchester United and the history of the club and the background of the club and everything that comes along with it is very apparent. But we're now seeing a team who have all that history, who are being run in such a way that they're not being allowed to, they're almost not being allowed to become competitive and in terms of the way that they're working within the, the recruitment market. I think that I did read that piece that you referenced in The Athletic regarding the deal for Sancho, and it never felt like they were actually going to sign him because Dortmund are very open about these things. Michael Zork is very open about these things often, and, and he kept coming out and saying, look, we've had no contact from United. And they were baffled by this because they believed that United were interested in the player, and the player was telling them that, 
he 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 knew that there was interest from United and it was never materialising because as you say they don't want to spend the money this year it might be that next year that happens and that appeases the fans if they've not got Champions League football I think just to pivot slightly to talk a little bit about Spurs in this game as well because it would be wrong not to I think that there were several interesting things from a tactical point of view from Spurs I think Sergio Reguilon at left back showed why United should have signed him instead of yes they've got Alex Tellez now but his performance as left-back for Spurs in this game, was what Luke Shaw should have been for Manchester United. He provided an attacking outlet. He was up and down the left flank. His passing was good. His crossing was good. His combinations were good. And his positioning was good. I think that the the role that Pierre Hoiberg is, is playing now in the midfield for Spurs, I think that he's shown a little bit more control over the last two match days, and he controlled this game really well. But what really is noticeable for me, there are two things. The first is that Spurs apparent finding of form has coincided with Mourinho making it up with Tonga in Dubelli, which yes. I think is just so key because I know that you're a huge fan as well and, and like me I believe that you were a fan of him while he was at Leon too. Mm. You talk about progressive midfielders and midfielders with that extra that can dribble in the midfield and pass and get into the penalty area and defend and press and all these things and Indombele is that in a package of a midfielder. All of a sudden, he's come back into the Spurs team after being ostracised by Mourinho for much of last year. It's it's really interesting when you watch the the Amazon documentary, the All or Nothing series in Spurs, that you don't see in Dombelli. It's At almost all. like no, it's almost like the cameras have been told that we or he's either not in the first team areas or the cameras have been told that this is something that's ongoing. We don't want him to be on this because he is very upset at the moment with the way that his career is going at Spurs. But now he's back into the side, and he was the player who was pressing, who was moving forward in possession, who was always positive. And he combines extremely well with this kind of duo. Harry Kane and Hoeman Sun have developed a partnership at Spurs that I think is really intriguing because Harry Kane is starting to drop into deeper and deeper areas, which people have always talked about him doing. There's, there's always been a sense, I think, that Harry Kane was a pure number nine, but he isn't. He's a he's more creative than that. He's more comfortable in deeper areas. And when he drops off the, the, the defensive line, he affects the defenders in the same way that Roberto Firmino does at Liverpool. And they don't know whether to drop with him and to cover him or whether to stay high. And as soon as they drop towards him, Sun makes those movements, those diagonal movements from the left. And I think that Sun is now getting towards the point where he's edging towards that elite level of striker at the Premier League level. Yeah, I totally agree. I love the link-up play between the two of those. And I agree with you on Harry Kane. I mean, there's a reason he chose to wear number 10 yeah, and not exactly. number 9. And myself and Kevin DeVries of the EPL Roundtable pod have often talked about this, that Kane, whether he he was played as, as it or not, Kane has always been more of a nine and a half than a nine. He likes to drop off. He likes to get involved in the build-up play. Spurs have been so reliant on him for goals and for that end product and because they've been wary of putting too much wear and tear on his body because he's had the injuries, that they haven't really asked him to do that. But Mourinho is now asking him to do that more. And I think when Bale comes into this team, Assuming they stick 4-3-3, I think we will see more and more Kane dropping off, bringing defenders with him, because you have to go with him, because he's such a threat to shoot from long range as well, that that's going to open up massive space for Bale and Son to just burst into. And when they've got Mora and Bergvine coming off the bench, 
Uh, they've also got uh, Carlos Vinicius, who they've landed now as well. Another option up front. They, they're in such a good shape up front. The midfield was a question mark, but like you say, Mourinho's made up with Endombele now. I think that's credit to both because during the summer, there were multiple reports that that relationship was unsalvageable, yep. that Mourinho wanted him gone, that he wanted to go. I think it's credit to both, especially the manager, because for a manager like Jose, who's been there, done that, won it all, is known to be a little bit stubborn. I think that's it's fair to say he's a little <laughs> bit stubborn <laughs> yes. um, and has fallen out with players before. Uh, I think it's massive for him that he's realized, look, this kid, this kid can can absolutely play, and I can I can find ways to make up for what he maybe lacks in at times. So maybe there's times when Endembele switches off defensively, but if I've got Pierre Emel Emel Hoiberg and I've got Musa um, Soko, who I'm not a massive fan of, but he does work exceptionally hard. Yeah. If I've got those two, I can make up for the the slight lapses. And as you said, I thought Regulon was absolutely fantastic. I thought as a, as an outlet, he was just available all the time. Spurs have done really well to get him in. I know there's the pain of the buyback. But look, Real Madrid do not want him. Real Madrid, if they ever do buy him back, are only going to do so to sell him. So if he keeps up this kind of these kind of performances, in six months, Spurs could go to Real and say, look, you're going to buy him back and sell him for maybe six. You'll buy him back for 40 and you'll sell him for 50. Why don't we just give you an extra 10 to 12 million now and we'll just buy out that clause and they'll keep the player because he, he has fitted in so well. I, I thought Spurs executed a really good game plan. I thought Mourinho, Mourinho got the revenge that I'm sure he wanted. I thought he was quite, quite surprisingly humble in the post-match interviews. Because I kind of expected him to just, you know, to really put the boots in, but he didn't. <laughs> uh, I thought he could have. Uh, just on, one last thing on, on on the United thing. So, 2013, obviously, they win the league. Ferguson retires and Moyes takes over. They're in the Champions League. They buy Fellaini in the in the summer, along with um, Guillermo Varela, who obviously ne- never amounted to much at United. Yep. In the January, they went and they got Juan Mata. But that's what they did. So that was in the Champions League. They obviously didn't make the Champions League then at the end of that season. They went out and bought Ander Herrera, Luke Shaw, Marcus Rojo, Angel Di Maria, Daly Blint, and uh, Timothy Fosu Mensah. So they spent massive that summer. They get in the Champions League. And then in the summer of 2015, they sign Memphis Depay, who was about 28 million, Darmian about 12. Schweinsteiger about eight. Morgan Schneidlin was 22 or so. Anthony Martial was the big signing, but that was like a gamble on a young player, a long-term fixture, not someone that was going to help straight away. And it was a heavily incentivized deal, but they did sell Nani, Robin Van Persie, Johnny Evans, Javier Hernandez, and Angel Di Maria. So the net spend was quite small. They finished fifth that year. They don't make the... Uh, was it that year they finished fifth? Yeah, they finished fifth that year. They don't make the Champions League. So they're in the Europa League again. So they sign Henrik Mkhitaryan, Paul Pogba, and Eric Bailly. So clearly, big money into the Europa League. They finish sixth that year, don't make the Champions League, and they go massive again. They sign Viktor Lindelof, Nemanja Matic, Zlatan, and Romelu... Rome- 
Romelu Lukaku. And then in the January, they go and they get Alexis Sanchez and they finish second and make the Champions League. And then in the summer of 2018, they signed Delot, who was cheap, and Fred, who was about 45 million. But they also sold Marouane Fellaini that year and Daily Blind. So again, a very small net spend. This has just been the pattern that they won't spend if they're in the Champions League. So that's a problem that United fans should be concerned about. Um, on the plus side, if you don't make the Champions League this year, maybe they will be willing to pony up the money for Jadon Sancho. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, I doubt Jadon Sancho wants to play in the Europa League. So it, it's not a good look for United. It's not a good situation for them to be in. Uh, they do have owners that don't care about the club. Now, from a business perspective, United is absolutely booming. But yeah. from a footballing point of view, uh, things don't look good. No director of football. Very small scouting staff by by the sounds of things. Like No real analytical approach. I know they've got an, analytic, an analytics department, but it doesn't appear like they use it in their scouting. Yeah, And Ollie flits between looking like a competent manager and looking like a PE teacher who's in charge of a school team. <laughs> so there's a lot to, a lot for United fans to be concerned about. Uh, and obviously the on-field product is, is the most important thing to the fan. And if they continue to play like they did against Spurs, I mean, it, it's not going to get better anytime soon. No, it's, it's definitely not. And that's a problem. I mean, how... How long do they do this? How long do they put up with these kind of performances? Because this is, so far they've played against, you're absolutely right, they they were completely outplayed against Crystal Palace. They were completely outplayed against Brighton. I have no idea how Brighton managed to hit the woodwork as many times as they did. And their performance against Spurs was abject. They've got Champions League football coming up. What happens if they, they don't get through their Champions League group back, the, the group? What what then do the fans start to think? I think eventually you've got to start questioning the the tactical decisions and the team selections and all these different things. I mean, they've signed Donny van de Beek. For what it's worth, I'm a huge fan of Donny van de Beek. Mm. I think he's an excellent midfield player, but he's a very specific type of midfield player. He's not a passer, a progressor. He's not somebody who'll collect the ball deep. What he is is a midfielder who will break past the striker. He'll occupy himself in the final third and he'll get space in the penalty area and he'll get a lot of touches in the penalty area and he makes something happen in those circumstances. But you have to know how to use him as part of a coherent tactical structure. And I think the reason that he's not been used by Man United yet properly is that they don't know how to play him. So why did they sign him? It's yeah. just, a lot of it makes no sense to me. No. And you looked at their midfield at the start of the summer and you thought, OK, they definitely need a holding midfielder. Because even though Matic played well at the end of last season, he'd been poor for 18 months before that. He's, you know, quite old now for, you know, for a top class midfielder. So you really would want to freshen that position up, bring someone in, at least someone that can challenge him and maybe succeed him in six to 12 months. You're probably all right in terms of central midfielders. You've got Pogba, you've got Fred, you've got McTominay, you've got options there. Um, You've got Bruno as your attacking midfielder, and you've got Mata, and you've got uh, Pereira. I know he's gone on loan now, but you still got Jesse Lingard. See, again, you have options there. You know, they're maybe not the best options, but they are bodies who can play there. At holding midfield, it's Matic, and then other than that, you're having to pull somebody from a different department. You're saying to McTominay, look, I know you're a box-to-box midfielder, but come and do this role. Or Fred, I know you're more a central midfielder who likes to sort of, you know, 
be the secondary defensive player, a bit like Ginny Wijnaldum at Liverpool, but we need you to be that holding player. And and they went and they spent thirty-five million on an, an attacking midfielder who I like him as well. I think he's a really good player. I don't know that you can play him with Bruno. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the, the tactical structure would look like to play him with Bruno. Um maybe if you, if you tried to play Bruno in a midfield two and play him as the ten, that could work, but um, you don't bring in the cover you need up front. They, yeah, they brought in Cavani, and, and I like Cavani, but you know he's thirty three, and the only reason you're really getting him is because everyone else turned him down. Yeah, um, you haven't brought in any cover out wide, so you know what happens if Greenwood or Rashford get hurt? Uh, you've got two young kids coming in, uh, massively talented by all accounts. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about either of them, Traore or uh, Palestri. But massively talented, but they're 18. Uh, Traore won't al- arrive till till January. Palestri's coming from Uruguay, so there's going to be an, an adaptation period. You had, I'd say, solid enough options at fullback. Again, not great, but solid. But you had a gaping hole at centre back, and you didn't address that. You know, it it doesn't make sense to me what they've done this year. And there was no real links to centre backs other than Gabriel. Yeah, there was no. Li- Holding midfield, and even the, the centre back they were linked with, Gabriel, is a left side centre back. And didn't they yeah. just spend eighty million on Harry yeah. Maguire, who's a left side centre yeah. back? And they sold possibly their best centre back to Roma because Chris Smalling, towards the end of last season in Serie A, was one of the top defenders in yeah. Italian football. And they just let him go without thinking maybe this would solve our issues. That, that, yeah, that there's very little coherent thought. I think. I wonder, and I'll, just to get your your view on this, as someone who who has a deeper tactical knowledge than myself would they be better off if they tried to move to something like a 3-4-3 to simplify things a little bit for Ollie to get to get um, Greenwood and, and Rashford a little bit closer into Martial so you play that as your front three then maybe you go Brandon Williams as a right wing back Alex Tellez as a left wing back Bruno and Fred maybe as a midfield pair in in that three four three, and then play Wan Bissaka as a right centre back with his pace, Shaw as a left centre back where he has played before and looked quite good, mm-hmm. and then Maguire is that central player who you can afford to play that little bit deeper. And now with a bit a bit of pace around him, especially with Wan Bissaka, he maybe doesn't get exposed, maybe isn't been asked to to defend big spaces, could that work? Would that be something that they could look at? Because the the current setup isn't working. No, I, that could definitely work. I think that there there's a lot to like about that system. I think there's been a, a lot of thought now for the last 12 months that Wan-Bissaka would be better as a right-sided centre-back because from a defensive standpoint, from a one-on-one defending point of view, he is extremely good. The problems with Van Bissaka come in the possession phase because he isn't the player that you want in space wide on the right hand side in the final third because his delivery no. and his his thought process isn't always there in terms of knowing when to release and where to release to. Luke Shaw did look good at that in that role as a left sided centre back and what I always like that there's a player who who played in Belgium that was signed by Bologna last season called Takahiro Tomiyasu, a Japanese really good. Yeah, really good player. And I I wrote the scout football handbook article on him after I think the last time, but he when he popped up and I can't remember which one that was, but he played in Belgium as a centre back, 
Um, when he signed for Bologna, he played as a right-back. Now, this season, Bologna moved him back to centre-back again. But having players who can naturally play either right-back, left-back and centre-back doesn't mean that you no longer have that issue of central defenders being pulled to defend in wide areas because you know they can already do it. We talked about Harry Maguire not covering in that and the, the run of Serge Aurier when he was played through for the goals. Yes, Luke Shaw was out of position, but Harry Maguire could have moved out to cover that. He didn't do it because he's not comfortable because he knows he'll get exposed. But Luke Shaw and Wabasaka would be comfortable doing mm. that. And then you leave Harry Maguire just to defend the penalty area, if you like, where perhaps he'll get into less trouble, perhaps he'll foul his own player again. You never know what will happen. I think the, the only... The foul <laughs> on Luke Shaw is, is gold. That, I mean, I, I like Harry Maguire. I, I don't... I'm not one of these that says he's terrible. I think he's a good defender. I think he's a £40 million centre-back. I think he's unfortunate that United were so insistent on him that they overpaid for him. But that clip is going to live with him for the rest of his career, I'm afraid. The, the two headers and, and then pulling Shaw down. The look in Shaw's face. When he, he's adamant he's been fouled. He just doesn't yeah. realise it was his own player that fouled him. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's something that's definitely going to stick around for a little while. I think the problem with the 3-4-3 comes in the midfield and it comes with Bruno. Um, how do you play him? I would almost be tempted to play him as the central striker in the three and tell him he can drop off the way well, that that's not the way that Roberto Firmino drops off the line because then you'll give, have a little bit more balance in the midfield because you could have probably Fred, you're right, and whoever else in the midfield, I'm not sure exactly who it would be alongside Fred. But if you have Bruno in that role, then you can have Greenwood and Rashford making runs beyond him the same way that Salah and Mane do, for example, for Liverpool, occupying the central areas, letting Bruno drop into pockets to receive the ball. I think then something interesting starts to happen. But I think all of this depends on whether... Solskjaer is willing to take a risk from a tactical point of view. Yeah, and I suppose playing Bruno further, further forward gives you the option to either bring Donny van de Beek into midfield, yeah. where he, and he has played in a two before, or or the elephant in the room, which is Paul Pogba, who <laughs> United have hard decisions to make over him. Yes, But is. as well as that, you get Martial, then you can kind of rotate Greenwood, Rashford and Martial in those wider roles. You've got Cavani to bring off the bench if you just need that goal threat. And if you decide that, you know, Brandon Williams isn't quite ready, well, the window to buy players from the championship is still open. And Max Ahrens is just sitting there at Norwich. Yeah, he is. Who would be a really good addition. And then you've got him and Tellers as your starters and Williams as your depth on both sides. And all of a sudden, you've solved your problems. And I think Lindelof would be better suited to playing in a three. Yeah, I think Baye is better playing in a three. So you probably get more out of your squad. And if you play that three, you'll naturally play that little bit deeper. And that will suit David De Gea a bit more. Because one thing I noticed, Lee, in this game was David De Gea was absolutely glued to his line. Yeah, just he was just like a rabbit in the headlights at times. And Spurs were breaking through on goal. I mean, yes, the marking was off. There were players son at one point when he scored it in the air post. He ran into penalty area without a Manchester United player near him. Mm. But... At the same time, your goalkeeper needs to be more decisive. And I, again, don't know how long David De Gea is stuck with and whether Dean Henderson gets a shot at some point this season. I think he has to. For Sun's first goal, when Kane plays that through ball, Sun's first touch is so heavy. Yep. And any sweeper keeper is out off his line and takes that ball off his toes. And De Gea just stuck to his line. Uh, it, was, it was 
really poor. It was like watching the the De Gea that originally landed in England all those years ago. That guy who was stuck to his line, had no confidence in himself, didn't really know his defenders, didn't know what they were, were going to do and what they could what he could trust them to do. They didn't seem to have any trust in him. That was concerning. Um, we'll leave that one there. I think that's painful enough for United fans, but I had to suffer my pain, so you get <laughs> yours as well. Um, we'll wrap up with a little bit of transfers, uh, Lee. I- I'm very high on Brighton. Yeah. I think I- I've been clear on that all year. But um, I think they've left themselves a little bit short. I think they needed a striker and a left wing back. But they did make three signings late in the window. Now, these are, are players that I'm not familiar with. I, I've, I know who they are. I've heard of them. I've seen bits and bobs. Um, Andy Zakiri, Mikel Karbonik, and Jacob Motor. Can you tell me anything about them? They're... Zakiri will stay with them this year, and the other yeah. two, the, the two Polish boys, are gone back on loan. Uh, the ana- the analytics crowd on Twitter are delighted with these signings. They are <laughs> yeah. apoplectic with joy over these three signings. Yeah, I think that Andy Zakiri start with is the striker, and I think that you and I talked about Brighton in an, an earlier podcast, and we talked about the need that they had to have something different in the striker position because at the moment they've got Neil Mopai and they've got. Aaron Connolly, who, if you put them side by side, you struggle to tell the difference at times. And if you see them play, you struggle to see the difference at times because they do the same things. Zakiri's a very interesting player. I think he stands about six foot one. Um, he's a goal scorer, first and foremost. He's a player who can lead the line. He can hold the ball up. He can link in with others. But he can also run in behind. So he's got that dual threat. He's really technical, good feet for somebody who, who can play as a reference striker. He, he reminds me a little bit of Sebastian Aller in the way that he can receive the ball and shield the ball and kind of hold off and be press resistant. I think that it's really smart that they've kept him because he's somebody who can make a difference for them straight away, perhaps not starting, but certainly coming off the bench to start with and then becoming a starter as time goes on. I mean, just to give you a snapshot, he, he's not been capped at a senior level. He's Kosovan um, heritage, but he was born in Switzerland and I think has said that he will pledge his allegiance to Switzerland for, on international level. And he has nine under-21 caps and nine goals. So... He's certainly somebody who has been known about a little bit of time. You're right, the analytics communities always loved him because his shot locations and his, his XG is always very, very good in each game he plays. So he's definitely an interesting player. And he's somebody who, again, shows us that Brighton do a lot of their recruitment work from an analytics standpoint. A lot of people praise Brentford in the Championship for the way they recruit. And everybody knows that they're run by Matthew Benham, who's a professional gambler. But Brighton are owned by Matthew Benham's biggest rival in Tony Bloom. He's also a professional gambler who uses data in his gambling business, so he understands data. He understands how to use it. They've recruited so incredibly well. We we could probably spend a podcast just talking about some of the young players that Brighton have out on loan because there are so many of them that could well make an impact at different clubs, not just Brighton at Premier League level eventually. I mean, we, we know about Ben White, but Leo Ostergaard, the Norwegian defender, has gone out on loan to Coventry this year after being at St. Pauli last year. If Ben White sold next year for £50 million, Leo Ostergaard just steps in. So mm. we know that they use data. We know that they, they plan this way, and Zikiri's another example of that. 
you talked about left wing back, and Michael Carboniak is a left wing back, but he can also play. He's he's one of these rare players when you watch him play. If you get a chance to watch him on Y Scout at some point, he's so two footed. You're never entirely sure if it's left or right is more dominant with him. So he can play on the left, but he's also played on the right hand side. So he gives you that balance and cover that you talked about with Brandon Williams at Manchester United offering because he is a right back, but he has been played at left back. Carboniak's similar, but just the opposite way. Very competent player. He's somebody who's not going to be as scared of the aggressive side of the Premier League. He'll stand his ground. He's, he's slightly undersized, perhaps, for a, a, a left back and a left wing back in the Premier League. But Brighton have Tariq Lamptey, so obviously they don't mind undersized fullbacks. Um, he's good in the possession phase, good in the attacking phase, provides width, has really good delivery with his left foot in the wide areas, but he can also break in. So it's not unusual for Legia Warsaw to see him play in more of an inverted role. So you'll see him make a run up the pitch, but then if the left wing's occupied, he thinks nothing of attacking independently and making those runs that are so effective because they lead to either cutbacks or penalty opportunities because so often the pullback in those circumstances gets tripped. Um, I did think when I saw that they were signing Carboniak that they would keep him because mm. I think it, Solly Marsh needs competition and Carboniak would have had an opportunity to split minutes with him straight away. I don't know if that was something that Legia Warsaw were just intent on as part of the deal because the deal came quite late in the window. I don't think they were keen to lose him. I think that he's been talked about as a captain at Legia Warsaw, even though he's only 19, so it speaks a little bit of his character as well. Defensively, he's very rarely beaten in one-on-one duels. He's always strong, always solid, defends his back post well, can play centrally if he's pulled into central areas. So I think that in Carboniak, Brighton have got a real, real player. Yeah, I I wonder if maybe they were able to get both of the Polish kids a little bit cheaper by agreeing to the yeah. the one-year but, loan backs. Um I, I was really hoping they'd go and get Ryan Sessegnon on loan. I know they did. They were interested in him. Yeah. Uh, well, according to reports, they were interested in him. And bringing him in for the year while Karboniak was back in Poland on loan and then having him to come over next year would have given them, you know, really good quality in that role. Um, the Motor Kid, uh, he's meant to be a big, powerful midfielder, like I yeah. say, bits and pieces, but I don't know a whole lot about him. But again... Uh, the analyst, analytics community are very high on him, and I've seen some of the Market Insights guys, and if you if you don't follow Market Insights on Twitter, they're a great bunch of lads, and they're doing really good work, and they've got a really interesting project that they've put together, and they're working with a number of professional clubs. Uh, a lot of them um, seem very keen on this kid as well. So, you know, Brighton are a very, very well-run club, and like you say, Tony Bloom, he doesn't, doesn't do, uh, even though he's a gambler, he doesn't really gamble. He he kind of finds the the seams and works there, and he's he's made himself an incredibly rich man by being very good at what he does. Uh, any other transfers that stood out to you this year, Lee? Any, any that you saw and went, oh, that's that's someone I've been following for years, or, or something that you know you maybe didn't expect. Yeah, there's a couple that, that really stood out to me. Uh, the first one is Wolves getting Ryan Aitnudi, the the left back from Angers in France. They they've got him on loan. 
he's somebody who, like you say, I've been following for a long, long time, had a bad injury last year that kind of curtailed his progress, but he is a really, really interesting player, especially in the attacking phase. I think that if Wolves fans see Ike Nuri on the pitch, they'll, they'll see something interesting, and perhaps it stood out a little bit more that he's not Portuguese and he's signed for Wolves, so who knew they can yeah. actually recruit outside of that market? Um you touched upon them earlier on, but Manchester United, for all that we have pilloried their recruitment and their squad building and their squad planning, they have pulled off a real coup with Ahmad Diallo Traore from Atalanta. Um, mm. Interesting story, because I actually heard yesterday that he's now going to be known as Ahmad Diallo and that he has been in Italy illegally. So at the moment, he's trying to get his citizenship sorted out in Italy to make sure that there aren't going to be any issues in terms of work permits. But by all accounts, he isn't going to. He's actually got a brother. Um, I don't know if you're aware of him. Hamid, Hamid yeah. Ha- yeah, Hamid Traore. I didn't know there were brothers up until about six months ago. and It just blew my mind a little bit because Hamid Traore is another player who's really, really fascinating. But yeah. Ahmed Yalu or Ahmed Traore, whatever he's going to be known by, is dimin- a diminutive attacking wide player. He's the, the wide attacker on the right-hand side that Manchester United fans want. So perhaps they're not going to be as quick to go out and finish Sancho if they believe in Traore. Um, he's somebody who has really quick feet. He likes to cut inside. He always heads for goal. He links and combines really well outside the penalty area. Obviously, 18 still extremely raw and there's still a lot of development to do off the ball out of possession in terms of pressing when to drop back into defensive block all these things but all of these things will come but in terms of potential the sky's the limit for this player and I think that Atalanta were were resigned to losing him when he made it clear that if he wasn't a first choice this season he would be moving on from the club so United have actually done a good deal there Um, another one that caught my eye actually two from Everton and Everton, I know, are getting a lot of praise for James, for for Alan, for Ducuri, but there are two to the size of that that are actually really interesting. Firstly, they did well yesterday or at the, the end of the transfer window. So, sorry to go out and get Robin Olsen mm. on loan uh, from Roma. Sorry, um, we all know that Jordan Pickford has issues. Um, from a confidence standpoint, from a performance standpoint, he needs competition in Robin Olsen. Although he didn't cover himself in glory at times at, at Roma, he is a very good backup option who can play at the Premier League level to a point, I think. So interesting for them to pick him up. The other one, I don't know if you've seen him play yet, Dave, is Niels Dinkunku, the, the left back. The left back? No, I haven't yet, no. He is a really, really interesting player. Another player who's came out of Marseille, as so many do, and I don't know why Marseille produce all these players and then don't give them the time at first-team level, but Nkunku's another player that a Premier League club's been able to get out of Marseille for a relatively cheap price. I think that they're really smart in signing him because he offers immediate backup to Luca Digne with um, Leighton Baines now, now gone. His first exposure at first-team football came in the Carabao Cup and he just looked dominant at times, both from an attacking and a defensive standpoint. I think he's, he's then, Ancelotti, spoken about giving him time at the Premier League level to help his development and take him up to that level. And it'll be interesting to see exactly how many minutes he gets this year, but he's definitely one to watch out for. And just um, to talk about one more club, possibly Leicester City, have done quite a good job in the market. They haven't done a lot, but what they have done is sensible. Cengiz Under, the Turkish winger from Roma, is a really interesting attacking player. 
same as Eka Stania from Atalanta, is, as we've already seen how good he's going to be at the Premier League level with his ability to, to play in the attack and our defensive phases. And I think that they went out and got Wesley Fofana from St Etienne as well. He's a defender who is obviously going to be their their retirement plan, if you like, for Johnny Evans because he's somebody who can slot in there and play next to Kagler Sayunchu. So a lot of joined up thinking from Leicester City, I think. Yeah, I totally agree, especially with... I really like what Leicester have done. I'm a little bit confused by the, the, the Castanier one because I had John Solano on uh, on yesterday's show who you know covers Syria and covers Roma, and he said one of the things that Castanier complained about at Atalanta was that he didn't want to play on the left, he wanted to play on the right. Yeah. And of course, they have Ricardo Pereira, but you know Pereira could leave next summer and at least they'll have the replacement in-house. He can just switch back because you assume he'll play left side when Pereira is fit. Uh, I love Fafan. I think it's a great signing. And as for Under, he kind of falls into the same boat as as Olsen and Justin Clivert and Amadou Diawara uh, and a lot of players who've gone to Roma in the last few years and it just hasn't worked for them. I mean, there's been something wrong with Roma for a couple of years because. Robin Olsen that you mentioned was really good at Copenhagen. Yeah, he went he out on loan to Calgary, Calgary last season and did really well. Now, he did get a quite a long suspension for getting involved in a physical altercation, but he's a really good goalkeeper, and he gives them a good option now if Pickford continues to, to hamper them. I think Everton had a great window top to bottom. Um, I think Godfrey's a good signing. Decore, I'm not overly sold on, but he started the season really well. Alan and Hamas obviously are superstars. And and even though I haven't seen this left back play, getting in somebody who you can rely on to cover for Luca Dina, so he's not having to play every single game in all competitions, was massive because he is one of their three or four best players. And if he's out, they suffer massively. In the same way Liverpool do when Trent isn't there. Yep. When Dina's not there, Everton are, are massively hampered. I think most clubs can be happy with what they've done. Like you say, I mean, United getting getting uh, Amadiallo Traore in, it's a long-term deal. It, it's something that's not for this season, maybe not even for next season. But he is a signing that they've been after for a year or so. Um, I think it was Laurie Whitehall as well who, who reported on that about six months ago that he was someone that United had, had eyes on. Um, He's another one to come to that incredible academy at Atalanta. And, and very few clubs do player development and player recruitment as well as Atalanta. And if you look at yep. who they've sold off over the last couple of years, you can put together a pretty great 11. Uh, so to get him in, I know they're, they're probably paying a hefty premium for a player that talent. But look, if he works out, he works out. And they did the same thing with Martial a few years ago. Um, they took a gamble on a young player with, with very limited uh, first team experience and it has worked out for them it's taken a little bit longer maybe than they would have expected but if they can repeat the trick then like you say they get that right sided attacker that they've been looking for so you know it's it's not all doom and gloom for United it's just that maybe for this season it's a little bit doom and gloom yeah. uh, Lee that's that's pretty much the lot anything you, you've got coming up anything you want to make people aware of uh, no, no, nothing at the moment. Still, um, if you want to pick up any of my books, check them out on Amazon or Book Depository or any bookshops that you want to go to. But if I do get around to writing anything, I've got a little bit more free time at the moment now the transfer window's out of the way, so I am going to be writing more 
keep an eye out on my Twitter at FM Analysis for any of my articles. Perfect. And uh, you mentioned the scouted football handbooks earlier on, and massive shout out to those guys. The, the quality of work that gets produced yeah. by the scouted football team is incredible. Any of those handbooks are worth getting your hands on. You can buy a physical copy or a digital copy, and they're they've all I have them all, and they've all been brilliant so far. So well worth checking out. Uh, that's it. That's uh, that's this part. I have Tom Cundert coming up next to talk about the new arrivals to the Premier League from the Portuguese leagues. Do do stay in with, with us for that one. But um, thanks, Lee. I will speak to you again next week. I'm delighted to be joined now by Tom Cundert, better known to some as at Portugal One on the Twitter machine. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time today. No problem. Good to speak to you. So I wanted to get your your view as someone who's an expert in Portuguese football on the players that are arriving to the Premier League from the Premier League of this year. So the first one, I suppose, is the most unknown um, in terms of he's got very little track record at senior level. Fabio Silva to Wolves for a club record fee of about £35 million. Uh, what's your view on him? How good do you think he can be? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's very, uh, it's, it took people by surprise here in Portugal. I think that one, uh, there'd been quite a lot of rumors that Porto were going to try and, uh, generate money through selling some of their young pearls. And he certainly fits into that category. But certainly, uh, I don't think most people were expecting such a high transfer fee. And of course, Wolves are just buying potential, aren't they? Because like you said, his track record, at senior level, is virtually non-existent. Uh, last season, I think he played about maybe about 12 or 15 games for Porto senior side, but the vast majority of those were like five-minute cameos or 10-minute cameos at the end of at the end of games. I think he only started three, and he only he only actually started one uh, league game. He was only selected once in the starting lineup for Porto, uh, you know, in a league game. So that kind of shows you that. He was very, very much at the start of his career. So how come he's generated 40 million euros, you may ask? <laughs> That's a, a very good question. I think uh, his record at youth level is absolutely unbelievable, outstanding, really. Uh, averaging pretty much a goal a game from when he was, I think, 15 or 16. Uh, all the youth levels, you know, um, just, just seemed to be a, a goal machine, really. So... That obviously got people very excited as he went up through under-15s, under-16s, under-17s. No uh, kind of waning in his, uh, you know, in his goal-to-game ratio. So people really started thinking that this is a, you know, a very special talent. Uh, but, you know, it's one thing doing it in youth football. It's another thing doing it, uh, you know, in senior football. And I think especially with strikers, it's... Uh, it does strike me this is a, a huge uh, risk, uh, you know, well, a huge gamble by Wolves. You know, obviously, if it pays off, they're going to have a, a fantastic striker on their hands. But, you know, we see it quite often with uh, youth team footballers, I think, especially, like I say, as a at striker in a striker position where they just uh, tear it up at youth level. But uh, at senior level, it doesn't quite work out that way or perhaps it takes a bit longer to develop. So... I think it's just a wait and see, you know, situation. Uh, of course, the I suppose the, the whole underlying feeling, the whole underlying reason why this happened, of course, is that 
Porto desperately need money and uh, all Premier League clubs in comparison to Portuguese clubs are absolutely dripping with money, even with, uh, you know, the pandemic and some slight financial restrictions that might have brought. So that's why this, uh, this you know, that's why this transfer happened. Uh, as far as if it would be a success or not, this is really one which I'm not willing to give my opinion at all mm. about because it's just very much a, a gamble. You know, it's uh, it's it's pretty much a roll of a dice if this will work out or not. We've seen in recent years a number of really high-level prospects leave the Portuguese league maybe too early. Renato Sanchez, Gonzalo Guedes, and it hasn't worked for them initially with that first move. And then the second move, it tends to work. We see with Sanchez now at Lille, he's playing very well. Guedes has done very well since joining Valencia, but obviously it didn't work for him at PSG. It's strange to be at the mo- with the Portuguese league at the moment because we're seeing a lot of players stagnate in their development. Someone like Florentino Luiz, for example, was was touted as the next Angolo Kante two years ago, and now it's just he's out on loan to Monaco. Is there? a fundamental flaw in Portuguese football at the moment? Is it a coaching thing? Is it a win-now mentality between the big two where they're not willing to give young players time to develop? Yeah, well, I think perhaps there's two separate things going on here. First of all, the the fact that Portuguese uh, Portugal's clubs have produced these uh, you know, fantastic talents and the fact that Portuguese football has always lagged behind, uh, you know, the big leagues in terms of finances and that the, the gap between the Portuguese league and the other leagues in terms of, uh, you know, the, the money generated by the game has just got bigger and bigger. So Portuguese clubs have really, uh, not, don't have any choice when, when somebody comes in with a big offer for one of their young players, one of their, you know, uh, young prospects. They really have to, uh, you know, they they have to accept it. There's no, there's really no that that's their financial model. They don't get enough money generated through sponsorship, through gate receipts, uh, you know. And uh, well, I was going to say, especially now with the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, this has been going on for years now. Portuguese clubs, in terms of wages, they just don't have the capacity to compete with uh, with the foreign leagues. And so, for instance, an example I always use is uh, Nani. When he left Sporting to go to Manchester United, his wages were increased uh, 17-fold. So he was getting paid 17 times more at Port at uh, Manchester United than he was at Sporting. And I believe he was one of the lowest-paid players at Manchester United at that time. So, you know, how can you keep a, a player? <laughs> how can you... Hold mm. on to a player when he's offered that kind of uh, money, even if, and like you rightly say there, quite often, it's it's not really the best move uh, in terms of their career development. I think you 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 flagged one up there, which is the most obvious example, which is Renato Sanchez, which you know just absolutely uh, stole the show really here in Portugal in his first season at uh, at Benfica, and then of course the Euro 2016. Uh, the triumph for, uh, for Portugal. He played a big role in that as well. And, uh, you know, 
the ideal thing for him in terms of his career development, everyone knew really, would be to stay one or two more seasons in Portugal and certainly not go to Bayern Munich, who were just stacked, you know, with the world's best midfielders. And so, you know, even the the great prospect with which he was, it was kind of predictable in a way that he'd he'd struggle to, you know, to make his mark. Uh, I think people were expecting him to do a little better than he did do just because he was so impressive. But, you know, it's one thing tearing it up in Portugal. It's another thing doing it in in the Bundesliga. So uh, so, so I think that's kind of the, the financial reason is the reason why these players, both from the club's point of view, the Portuguese club's point of view, and from the players themselves, I mean, this is even before we talk about agents and their fees, uh, that it just makes it very, very difficult for Portuguese players to stay in Portugal. As far as the, your question about players perhaps not kicking on as much as they used to or not having enough, not having many chances, uh, as they used to in Portugal, that's, that's very kind of fluid. I think that's a bit, uh, that's a bit, uh, debatable because it, it depends really what the club's situation was. Uh, Benfica, they made this big play on, uh, they keep saying made in Seychelles. They want a club made in Seychelles. Seychelles is their famous, where their famous academy is located. And uh, when they first sacked Georges Jesus, who was thought of as a, a manager who didn't really fancy uh, very much trusting in the, in the youth players, uh, they brought in their next two managers, Rui Vittori and Bruno Raj, were exactly the opposite. And they, they really flew in the kids. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, thrived and did very well you know even when uh george has just left these next two managers they won the league three times between them uh i think three times yeah in four seasons so you know and that was a, a, a team mainly made up of uh, their youth players and so everyone thought you know this is kind of a new model portuguese again going back to the finances portuguese clubs can't afford to go out and buy uh, high quality players so they are going to have to make them. So this is really going to, uh, this is really going to benefit Portuguese football. But, uh, the cold reality, especially with the top two, Benfica and Porto is they need to win, you know, always they need to be top of the tree in Portugal. And, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the well of seemed like a never ending well of, uh, you know, very top ta- talent coming from Benfica's academy that kind of dried up. They had a very disappointing season last season. Porto, whose youth team had won the UEFA, uh, you know, Champions League in 2019. So a lot of people were excited about them, uh, their young players. Uh, they actually won the league without using hardly any of these players, you know, just giving them five minutes here and there. And so, and then Jorge Jesus came back to Porto, uh, to Benfica. And he, like I said, is a player who, really insists on buying players who are uh, kind of the finished article. And that's one thing which, you know, youth players definitely aren't. And so uh, basically Benfica have completely thrown their policy out of the window of uh, trusting in their youth players. And they've just uh, spent big this season. Uh, Porto, they've also relied on their mainly South American players, uh, you know, more experienced players, not at all. Uh, trusted in their youth players. They've actually used their youth players as a means of, uh, you know, just making money. But then you've got Sporting, who are really off the free clubs, the one who is in the great, the, the most dire straits in terms of 
finances. And they've, uh, they've done the opposite, which is uh, it's, they've kind of gone full circle because they used to be a club which, uh, you know, very much relied on their youth players. They went through a phase when they kind of abandoned that policy, didn't really work out. And now, uh, you know, they've got five or six players uh, regularly in the starting lineup. And that some of them are really, really hot prospects. And I think there's one advantage for these players, these youth players at Sporting, is they will be played. And so they will get, you know, good experience, uh, you know, first team experience right from an early age. For instance, they've got two or three teenagers in their, in their first team who are starting every week. And you can, you can see it, you know, that's the only way a youth player really makes big strides when he's young is by playing top level football every week. And so, you know, it's a bit kind of a, it depends on the club, but you're, you're right that in general, Porto and Benfica are very much, uh, clubs who really don't invest much in their youth players for their first team anymore. But sporting are. So Porto and Benfica, like you say, just basically using their academies, which gen- genuinely are, are among the best in Europe, to fund first team buys by bringing through these young players and just selling them on as quickly as possible. We've seen a couple of the years, there was the likes of Joe Carvalho, who was sold off to uh, Nottingham Forest for about 14 million, and then that money just gets reinvested in, in new signings. Um, the next player on my list then is Vitania, a player, again, that not many people will be too familiar with in the UK. Uh, he's also joined Wolves on a loan, I think, with an option to buy. What can you tell me about him? Yeah, Vitania, yeah, he's a really good player. Again, he's, uh, you know, really creative midfielder, like little dynamo in there. And again, a player who was touted for a very big future. He's been particularly impressive in the Portugal under-21 side and... Like I said, in that youth, uh, in that Porto youth team that won the uh, UEFA Champions League, it's the only Portuguese side which has won uh, that competition in 2019. He was like key in that uh, in that team, and he did actually get a little bit of playing time uh, last season. Didn't really look out of place when he was given his chance. Uh, you know, the odd half hour here and there in in the first team. So again, it was that was a that was a sale which all of these sales really the the fans uh you know the local fans porto fans in this case they they really get a bit disillusioned because of course young no one as a as a fan of any club i'm sure i'm sure you're the same i'm sure everyone is the same there's there's nothing really more heartening than seeing a you know one of your own as it were coming through the youth ranks and uh you know and making it and really contributing to the team and making making a bit of a name for himself you know, and with Porto, they've they've had a, a lot of players who could have done that, and none of them have been given a chance to do it. I know we just look at just look at England, for instance. Ruben Neves, everyone knew as soon as he burst onto the scene that he was going to be a top player, sold straight away. Andre Silva, striker, uh, he was just scoring goals galore. His first season at Sport at Porto, he was a, a bit different in that he was a youth player, a, a youth player who as soon as he made a step up he was you know scoring goals galore at youth level as soon as he made a step up to the senior team no real no real drop off you know he was I think he scored 20 22 23 goals in his first season which is you know is fantastic for for a 20 year old or 21 year old at the time got sold straight away 
And uh, so, you know, it is very disheartening and it does make people, uh, you know, make people angry, especially of, of Porto and Benfica. The, the, the dynamics of Portuguese football have really changed in the last few years because what would happen previously would be players that really impressed, for instance, at the lower league clubs, at the, the non-big free clubs, we can say, uh, not uh, Porto or Benfica or Sporting, they would be bought by, uh, you know, by the big three, uh, you know, good young players. And then as well as the, these teams own youth products and, uh, you know, they'd be given a chance. And generally they would, uh, you know, they would make a contribution. Like I said, this is especially the case historically at Sporting. But, uh, but nowadays, you know, the, the good young players, especially at Porto and at, uh, and at Benfica and at Sporting, to be fair, when they, when when they appear, uh, they're they're sold straight away because uh, you know the, the the clubs are in such dire straits in terms of finances, and so you know I think this is a, a tendency which doesn't really show any any sign of changing anytime soon. Yeah, it is a bit of a shame. Um, moving on then to people up to players that people will be more aware of, players that have been around a little bit longer and played specifically in the Champions League. Alex Tellez has joined Manchester United to be their new left-back. Um, now, he's been highly rated for a couple of years and, and touted with links to a number of clubs, say for two to three years. United appear to have gotten him for quite a low price, around £14 million. Um, What is it that's taken him so long to leave, and how good do you think he can be in the Premier League? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, United have got him for, like you say, a very good price, but that's because his contract was out at the end of the season. Otherwise, there's no doubt he would have been a lot more expensive. Uh, Porto just managed to keep hold of him. Uh, he, he, he seemed to really enjoy the club, to like the club. He had a good, uh, rapport with the, with the fans there and, uh, you know, really fitted into the system. The, the manager loved him and, uh, he was tremendously successful and, uh, it was always just a question of time, uh, you know, that he was so impressive, really, even in, you know, Champions League football, like you say, in European football. It was only a question of time before he left. And so I think he was, he was perfectly happy. He was perfectly, uh, willing, you know, to, uh, to, to stay in Portugal, uh, and just wait for, for what he considered the right move. If he did, even if he stayed this, this extra year, you know, then he would have obviously, in terms of, uh, kind of finances, he would have been able to, uh, to have a huge signing on fee wherever he went. So even that wouldn't have been a disaster for him personally. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, there's no doubt about it. Really, really top player. I think is going to improve Manchester United. I don't watch an awful lot of the Premier League, to be honest, but, uh, I've been watching a little bit of United the last few months just because of Bruno Fernandes. Uh, you know, uh, really, again, top player, really pleased to see he's doing so well. And, uh, yeah, I think it's obvious, you know, to everyone that, that, uh, you know, is, uh, the defense, Man United's defense is really their weak spot. And Luke Shaw really doesn't seem to cut it. And I think Alex Tails is definitely an upgrade, you know, really good player going forward, links up really well, absolutely fantastic crossing ability. He's got a, a ridiculous amount of assists. He's the top assist. 
his top assister in Port in Portugal this last season and perhaps the season before. Not quite sure. He scored he scored twenty six goals for uh, for Porto, which is a record for a defender. Uh, you know, a lot of those has to be said are penalties, which I don't suppose they'll be taken, of course, because Bruno Fernandes will be taken taking them. Also, uh, free kicks, great free kick taker. Uh, his, his crossing is really something to behold. He's got quite an unusual technique. He kind of bends his body and, uh, and as he strikes the ball and he just gets so much whip on those crosses. They're really a nightmare to defend. Quite similar, I'd say, to the way David Beckham used to cross the ball. You know, he's just, uh, just really, really uh, hit with pace, with accuracy. Just uh, and it's it's led to no end of goals. Uh, Porto last couple of seasons, well, last three seasons really, since Sergio Conceição has been their manager, they've put a lot of emphasis on their set pieces and corners, and they've just I think again broken records for the amount of goals that they they've scored. Uh, you know through that avenue, and so yeah, I think uh, he'll definitely uh, you know add to. Uh, you know, he'll definitely improve Manchester United. Uh, you know, whether he improved them enough, <laughs> that's another question. It seems like, uh, they've got quite some, some quite big problems. But, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think it'll be a hit in, in the Premier League without a doubt. Yeah, they may, they may well need a lot more help. Um, across Manchester, a team that definitely needed help in defence, uh, Manchester City signed Ruben Diaz. Um, quite a high fee on this one in the, in the 60 million range. And Nicholas Otamendi has gone to Benfica in a separate deal for accounting purposes, but, you know, basically as part of this deal. Uh, he made his debut against Leeds. He looked promising. I'm a big fan. Uh, some people have doubts on him. What's your, what's your view on, on Ruben Diaz? Yeah. Yeah. I think he'll, I think he'll do well. He's a good player. Uh, it's, you know, very aggressive. There's no, absolutely no problem. Some people, they talk about making a switch from Portugal to England. You know, one of the problems is, of course, so much more physical in England, faster and, and stronger, basically, the, the players. Uh, but that would be no problem for Ruben Diaz because he's naturally a very aggressive player. And, uh, that part of the game, he'll have no problem at all. Very good in the air, very strong in the air. You know, anything near his zone, he'll be winning those headers. And, uh, and yeah, I think, uh, Manchester City fans can be quite, quietly confident that they, they've got a, you know, a high class centre back there. I'd say one of the things which he, one of his, uh, weaknesses perhaps was he did tend to switch off sometimes, a bit of a lack of concentration. Uh, but curiously that, that happened quite often in, in the smaller games and, uh, you know, against weaker opposition, uh, making mistakes which you really wouldn't expecting to but in all the big games and uh and also for the portuguese national team which uh you know usually uh every game they play you know is a pretty big game and uh and he's been he's been excellent in those you know in the classicos here in in portugal so whenever he's played against uh against porto or against sporting he usually puts in a you know a, a barnstorming display and uh I even remember for Portugal, for instance, in the Nations League final against uh, against the Netherlands, he was arguably Portugal's man of the match. He was uh, he was just absolutely flawless in that game. So uh, so yeah, he's a little bit, I suppose, another possible weakness. He is a little bit over aggressive at times. He he's he's a 
centre back who certainly likes to, you know, get in front of the of the striker. He doesn't kind of, uh, you know, step back and, and see and try and make himself a wall. He likes to intercept the ball almost before the striker gets the chance to control it. And so sometimes he can uh, be a little bit over eager in that sense. But to be fair, uh, he seems to know when to uh, kind of, uh, you know, not to overstep the mark because his disciplinary record is actually surprisingly good given his style of play. I think he's only got one red card in his career and uh, even yellow cards, he tends to to manage to avoid them uh, quite surprisingly so. So, so yeah, I think I think he'll do well. Uh, again, looks like, a, you know, a team, it's amazing, isn't it? We talk about Manchester United and Manchester City with their, with their incredible spending over the years, and yet it seems like they uh, they do have some gaps in their team, and I think that's one gap uh, in Manchester City's team, which uh, perhaps Ruben uh, Ruben Diaz can plug. Yeah, well, they're, they're going to need to hope so because they've spent a lot of money on defenders over the last few years, and with this being the last year of Pep Guardiola's contract, there's a lot of a lot of expectation I think on City this year. Um, the final one then is Carlos Vinicius, who joins Spurs from Benfica on a loan with an option to buy. Uh, he had a great season last year. Is it just down to maybe him not fitting into George uh, Jesus's plan, or was there another reason for his departure from Benfica? Yeah, I think that's the main reason. Uh, you know, he hasn't really had much of a look in since George Jesus uh, took over in the summer. Uh, other strikers have been, uh, you know, he's, he's down the peck in order, third or fourth even probably. And so it was quite surprising because like you said, last season, you know, he was top scorer in Portugal, uh, top scorer in the league. And uh, even though in quite a few of those games, you know, I think the start of the season, he wasn't he wasn't Benfica's first choice striker. And uh, he kind of worked his way into the side and then, uh, you know, scored lots of goals. Uh, it's Quite a curious player because, uh, you know, very good in front of goal, good, quite strong, uh, good, good poacher as well, scores a lot of goals, good in the air, a lot of the goals, a lot of his goals are very close to goal. But, uh, but sometimes he does look very kind of clumsy. And, and even last season, you know, even at the end of last season, quite often, uh, you know, he'd be the first player to be subbed at Benfica. Or I think even some of the the last few games of the season, he may have even started on the bench. And so, despite his fantastic goal scoring record, uh, you know he's not really like uh, an outstanding. He was he was never really a, a you know automatic choice for ninety minutes. And uh, and so uh, obviously there was some talk uh, a few months ago. The Benfica president said that he'd had offers for. 60 million for him which people at the time kind of scoffed at and they didn't really believe it uh they see there I, I believe the price uh the the loan to tottenham i i, I don't know if it's a obligatory uh you know sell on afterwards but i think the price they've agreed that if he is sold is 45 million uh, euros that's what's been reported in portugal anyway uh so uh, that strikes me also as quite a quite a high price so I think Benfica would be quite pleased with that business uh, but uh, you know maybe for Tottenham maybe he fits because of course I don't suppose if he's getting much 
playing time from uh, you know from the start because uh, you know certain Harry Kane has, has got that position nailed down, hasn't he? But then I suppose on the other hand, uh, we have seen Kane get injured quite a few times last few seasons, and also of course with this kind of scrunched up season and so many fixtures in you know in such a short space of time because of the pandemic and they and they've also got European football of course Tottenham so there'd be a lot there'd be a lot of opportunities I suppose uh I'd uh, yeah I think he, he he can do a decent job there uh again I wouldn't be quite so certain that it'd be such a big hit as for instance I think Alex Tails and Ruben Diaz uh, I've got absolutely no doubt that they will, you know, they'd, they'd probably be first teamers, automatic first teamers at their respective clubs. Uh, Vinicius, I think he can be an asset to to Tottenham, but perhaps won't have such a big impact. Yeah, with Kane, with Bale, with Son, they do have a lot of attacking options, Bergwijn and, and Mora as well. But as you say, with the pandemic and this shortened season and them having Europa League football, he should still get plenty of games. Um you know, domestic cups and, and Europa League, etc. And apparently Mourinho's very, very high on him. And he was Mourinho, one of Mourinho's personal targets. So, you know, if the manager has faith in him coming in, hopefully that will translate to success of the field. Uh, two quick things then, and I'll, I'll get you out of here. Um, it hasn't all been one-way traffic. There have been two moves of players moving from the Premier League to the Portuguese League uh, in the last couple of days. Felipe Anderson and Marco Grujic both joining Porto on loan. Uh, what's your thoughts quickly on how you think they'll do in the uh, in the Portuguese league with Porto? Yeah, I can't really talk too much about those players because, like I said before, I don't really watch much Premier League and I don't really know them uh, at all, to be honest. I'd just say, in general, people in Portugal are uh, you know quite excited by these moves and also bit of a sense of relief I would say that uh you know it's just like you said it seems to be all one way all the best players leaving Portugal uh, to go abroad but these are two you know two players who uh have got good reputations and uh you know quite uh high quality players have been linked to moves to bigger clubs as well uh but of course uh one of them plays for Liverpool so it's already at a very big club so just being able to attract that that caliber of player, I think, has, uh, as like I said, made uh, I suppose uh, soothed people's the Portuguese ego a little bit. <laughs> that we're, uh, you know, it, uh, the league does still hold some attraction to these players, and so uh, yeah, you know, I'd be very interested to see how they how they're going to do. I think if if Felipe Anderson can find his best form, the form he showed at Lazio in his first season with West Ham. I think he instantly can become one of the best players in the league. Um, I'm I'm quite a big fan of Grujic. He's been on at Liverpool for a couple of years now, but spent most of that time on loan. Did really well at Hertha Berlin um, during his time there. So with a bit of luck, it'll translate well. And obviously with Danilo Pereiro, uh, Danilo Pereira leaving Porto to go to PSG this summer, there is a need for a physical box-to-box style. Um, dominant midfielder, and, and hopefully he can be that one. The final thing then, what is the view in Portugal of Wolves and the the Wolves project that's taking place where they are slowly but surely morphing into Portugal North uh, with 10 Portuguese players now on their books, 
and uh, their third kit basically being the Portuguese national kit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, it's you know people are very very interested, and you know I think there's uh, if you five years ago uh, if you'd asked how many people in Portugal are Wolves fans, the answer would probably be, you know, in the tens. <laughs> Just maybe a few uh, expats coming from Wolverhampton or Birmingham or the West Midlands. But uh, no one really knew anything about Wolves or certainly didn't support them. And now they're probably everyone's favourite team. Of course, people are very excited and very interested uh, in that project. It's been good for Portuguese football in that, you know, uh, players like Ruben Neves, Rui Patricio, uh, you know, uh, Moutinho even, and, uh, you know, and all the rest, they've, uh, you know, they've been able to play top class football. They're getting great exposure. Uh, you know, keeps them at the top of their game, which is obviously beneficial for the Portuguese national team. And it's also just great, you know, for Portuguese football as a, as a whole to see, uh, you know, the most high profile league in the world and see so many players, Portuguese players at one club and that club doing very well and really earning praise from everyone. So, uh, yeah, people are, you know, really interested. Uh, quite often you see, uh, whenever Wolves are playing, you know, in the local cafes, you see quite big crowds, you know, gathered around the TVs. Uh, also in the press here, Portuguese, uh, you know, football is such a, a dominant part of Portuguese society. There are free, there are free daily newspapers, sports newspapers, uh, you know, and, uh, when I call it sports newspapers, but basically they're like, uh, 95% football. And so, you know, anything which goes on at Wolves is, uh, is, is reported uh, in depth as well. You know, lots of interviews as well with the players, you know, on international breaks and, and throughout the season as well. So, you know, people are very aware of the, of the Wolves project. They're, of course, right behind it because there's so many Portuguese people there, uh, so many Portuguese players there and, and the coach and staff. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's a huge, uh, I'd say that's, uh, you know, that's a, a part, Portuguese football in general, Portuguese people in general, they're very knowledgeable about, uh, foreign football. I think that's one thing I've always noticed since I've been living in Portugal for 25 years now. Uh, and, you know, even before the advent of, of the internet and being able to watch every game on your, on your mobile phone. Uh, people knew a lot about foreign leagues and, and, uh, you know, foreign players. But, uh, you know, I think Wolves has really just taken that to a different dimension. They're, uh, you know, a lot of people's second favorite club. Well, that's, that's, that's great news for Wolves and obviously shows that it's been respected in the homeland of the players, the manager, and of course, uh, George Mendes, who's heavily involved in, in the pathway for the players. Uh, Tom, this has been brilliant. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Um, so it's Tom Cundert and your Twitter handle is at Portugal, Portugal one. Where can people find more of your work if they want to read or, or listen to you? Yeah, that's the, that's the main place because everything I, uh, you know, anything I write or, or do, uh, I stick it up on the Twitter. Uh, so yeah, Portugal one, P-O-R-T-U-G-O-A-L one, the number one. Uh, and then the site is, uh, portugal.net. Uh, that's again, P-O-R-T-U-G-O-A-L dot net. And that's the site, an English language site all about Portuguese football. So we talk about all the domestic football, all the Portuguese players abroad and, uh, and the national team. 
And so basically, you know, everything to do with Portuguese football, but written in English, uh, all the news will be, will be there. So just if you're into Portuguese football, head over there. Perfect, Tom. Thanks so much. Hopefully have you on again soon sometime. Okay, so that's it. That's our show today. Thanks to Lee. Thanks to Tom. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle for his incredible work as always. Uh, I hope you've listened to yesterday's transfer podcast because Guy put it probably in too much work into piecing that one together for me. Uh, thanks as always to EPLindex.com for the platform. Thank you to Liberty Shield. Uh, Liberty Shield is our presenting sponsor. They are a VPN provider. So do check out their services at libertyshield.com. Use my code EPLVPN to get 20% off your hardware or your software, whichever package you prefer. Until then, I'll see you tomorrow. Podcast Network.